This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. It seems that COVID tyranny has suffered at least a temporary setback with OSHA backing off on the vaccine mandates for companies with 100 or more employees. Now, a few weeks ago, it had issued an emergency temporary standard which required businesses to implement a vaccination policy mandating that their employees either get vaccinated or submit to weekly testing. Now we have a reprieve after the Fifth Circuit weighed in and the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals will hear additional legal challenges. But Don't relax too much quite yet, because it seems COVID tyranny via Big Brother may just be warming up. Why do I say that? Well, because of something called the Vaccination Credential Initiative. It was launched back in January and includes the involvement of a little-known military intelligence think tank called MITRE. Now, the stated goal of VCI is to institute QR code-based vaccine passports across America and to implement a single smart health card that could be recognized across organizational and jurisdictional boundaries. This is big stuff. We're going to get some details on it now from Leo Homan, who's a veteran investigative reporter, author of Stealth Invasion, and writes some of this great material over at his website, leohoman.com. Leo, it is wonderful to welcome you back to the show. Thank you so much for being with us again. Thank you, Jan, for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, this is very concerning. I have to admit that until I had read it on your blog, I had not heard of this particular organization. This is called MITRE, the MITRE Corporation. Why should people be concerned about this corporation? Tell us a little bit about it. Well, for starters, uh, Janet, it's a nonprofit corporation that I would uh, classify as a quasi-governmental agency because all of its top officials are U.S. military intelligence officers. And it's sort of a revolving door between uh, the U.S. military and this outfit called MITRE. It's been around since 1958 when it was formed in a joint project between the U.S. Air Force and MIT, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And they, uh, their, in, their mission from the start has been to develop technology that is useful to the military in terms of spying on foreign enemies, and that's great. That's wonderful. But at some point over the years, uh, this outfit started turning all of that knowledge and that technology that they'd gathered uh, from spying on foreign enemies and turning that around on the American people. Uh, I suspect it started happening after... uh, you know, a few years after 9-11, like most of this, these other uh, military spy, uh, you know, monitoring surveillance apparatus organizations started doing this. 
Right. Now, Forbes has described this as a cloak and dagger shop that is the most important organization you've never heard of. What all are they involved in uh, concerning surveillance and in particular concerning the development of eventual vaccine digital passports for all of us? Yeah, well, uh, they they started a couple years ago. We know probably before that, but we know that for at least the last few years, They've been working with the FBI, Janet, and uh, and big tech. What they will do is they'll go into people's accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and what have you. They will steal biometric data, pictures, and what have you uh, from those social media accounts uh, that, that the government is interested in analyzing, and they will uh, use it to their advantage. And we don't know all what they do with it once they have it. But the fact is, and most Americans still, after all these years, are not aware that everything they put on Facebook, everything they put on Instagram or Twitter, is fair game, not only for these big tech corporations, but for the government. And I'm still amazed, you know, totally amazed, at what personal information people will put on their Facebook account and how often they will update their profile pictures. Every time you update your profile picture on Facebook, there is a scan done, there's a retina scan, a facial scan, a facial they use facial recognition software, and that is all logged uh, and turned over to the government, and it's permanently within their possession. You own none of it. Right. How is this legal exactly? I mean, this seems like a total violation of privacy. No, because they get you to sign their community standards, their agreements. And every time you uh, click on Facebook and log in, if they ask you that if they notify you that there's an update to the agreement, what do we do? We just click it and move on. We don't actually go in and read those agreements that we're signing on to. Right, right. That's very disturbing. So they've actually collected human fingerprints, it's written here, uh, from sites like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. So even your fingerprints are being picked up. That's correct. Very creepy. That's really creepy. And they also... And they also uh, they also have ties to the World Economic Forum, which we know is a uh, globalist, elitist organization that uh, is run, operated by Mr. Klaus Schwab, who is probably one of the world's foremost transhumanists. Yes. And he's talking in his books and in his speeches for the last year about, quote, a fourth industrial revolution. He says that COVID-19... Uh, and the, quote, Great Reset will lead us into a fourth industrial revolution in which our digital, physical, and biological identities will all be fused, merged into one identity. And so this is where we're heading, uh, Janet. It is truly a brave new world. Well, it is. So, so what is the involvement of MITRE in the development of digital vaccine passports? Tell us a little bit more about that whole effort. Well, there's this group you alluded to, the Vaccine Credentials Initiative, which is a project, a public-private partnership involving the Rockefeller Foundation, the World Economic Forum, and Microsoft. Uh, there's others involved in it as well, this group called BCI, Vaccine Credential Institute. And uh, on the steering committee in the group is uh, someone from this MITRE uh, 
which describes itself as a, quote, longtime trusted partner to the defense and intelligence communities. Uh, they're also working with the World Economic Forum and this Vaccine Credential Institute. It's all tied together. Goodness. Well, you know, going back to what you said about MITRE's involvement with what's going on with social media and big tech and the FBI, uh, the FBI doesn't have the most stellar reputation these days, considering they are going after parents who show up at school board meetings. I mean, this should really be concerning, if not completely alarming to Americans, that they're involved with the FBI with all of this surveillance and heading in much more terrifying directions. I mean, that that's the problem. I think it, Leo, you look at the fact that we, as Americans, most of my life, I know we always looked at these government agencies as being about the best for all of us and and having our back and defending the United States. And now, increasingly, more of us are looking at them as the enemy. I mean, what are your thoughts on all of that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that. And if your listeners will go to my website, leohoman.com, they'll see a fresh article. And the title of that article is, It Begins. FBI raids home and terrorizes family of mom who protested local school board and election results. And so they've been threatening to do this, uh, Janet. They've classified us, equated us with domestic terrorists since uh, October 4th when that memorandum came out from Attorney General Merrick Garland. And uh, just the other day, he was testifying before Congress saying, oh, no, 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 that's not what we meant by that. We're not going to treat uh, parents at school board meetings like terrorists. Well, just Tuesday morning, the FBI burst into the home of this uh, woman named Sharona uh, Bishop. She lives in Colorado. She was at home in the morning homeschooling her three kids. And the FBI breaks down her door, puts her in handcuffs, manhandles her daughter, her 18-year-old daughter, who was pulled up the stairs by her hoodie. And uh, she remained in handcuffs cuffs for over 30 minutes while they searched her entire house. Hang on a moment, Leo. I have to go to a very quick break. But when we come back, we'll let you finish that scary tale. We're coming back with Leo Homan talking about... The digital vaccine passports coming down the pike. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Esther is 17 years old and part of the Maasai tribe in Kenya, Africa. Like many of her age and gender, Esther was subjected to practices not taught in the Bible. One is arranged marriage, where a woman is forced to marry someone she doesn't know. The other is female circumcision, done out of superstitious belief with no known health benefit. Esther lived with bitter unforgiveness until a Bible League volunteer introduced her to Jesus. Now she's led her husband to Christ, and she's seen 60 young women come to embrace the hope of the gospel. But Bibles are scarce in this part of Kenya. So please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers in Africa and around the world for only $5. 20 Bibles costs $100. Make your most generous gift by calling 800 Yes Word. 800 Y E S W O R D. That's 800 937 9673. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
A mother's womb has now become the unsafest place in America, with abortion being the leading cause of death and babies being aborted up to term in some states. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, helping moms choose life. You see, when a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. She did let me hear the heartbeat, and I was like, wow, it's something like living inside of me. It was a beautiful thing to hear. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today and help save 400 babies by the end of this year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. And now through a match, your tax-deductible gift is doubled, saving 10 babies' lives. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It is really good to have an investigative reporter like Leo Homan out there to inform us on a lot of the news that the mainstream media just will not tell you. And one of the stories that he's reporting on over at leohoman.com is about the big brother aspect concerning the coming digital vaccine passports, the involvement of a military intelligence think tank called MITRE and their involvement with a group called VCI, the Vaccine Credential Initiative. Uh, it's all coming down the pike. And you were mentioning, Leo, before we went to the break, the the terrifying part of their involvement, MITRE's involvement with the FBI and and feeding the FBI information via big tech and some of the social media surveillance that they're doing, is we know what the FBI is up to. And you were giving an example that's just come out about this mom in Colorado who was raided. I mean, what what was the stated reason for being raided? That she had the wrong opinions or what happened? That's what she believes is the case. Uh, They, uh, in their search warrant, mentioned something about, uh, you know, um, access to protected. She somehow compromised or went in and had access to a protected computer system, which she says is complete baloney. Uh, She has been an outspoken, uh, has outspoken opinions about uh, Tina Peters, who is the uh, county clerk for, uh, I believe it's Mesa County there in in Colorado. And uh, she has had very outspoken opinions about what what that county clerk has been trying to un- unveil in terms of the 2020 election fraud. Wow. And so she's on their uh, targeted list, she believes, because she's she's committed the ta- two taboo. She's addressed two taboo topics. One is the critical race theory at the school board meetings and the forced masking of children. And then the other is the election fraud issue, and she's been very involved in the election integrity issue there in Colorado. So she had two black marks against her in this uh, Gestapo uh, Gestapo environment in which we now live, where the FBI will apparently come and raid your house, reserves the right to raid your house in a pre-dawn attack, similar to what they did to Roger Stone a couple years ago. Right. in the, in the middle of the night, scare your children, terrify your family, all because they just don't like your opinion. Incredible. And not to mention, not to too, get too far off the subject, but it reminds me of what's been going on with the January 6th prisoners. These people hardly getting a speedy trial, and there have been all kinds of reports about what's being done to these people, many of whom did nothing more than it would appear to be 
trespassing and, and ill-advised wandering into the Capitol. But, you know, th- this is where the government is. So going back to this issue of minor Leo, they have apparently their own COVID-19 health care coalition, and they're involved in this whole issue of bringing about passports. Now, this has already been implemented in a couple of states, at least a couple of states across America. How is this effort developing? Do you know much about how far they are down the road in trying to force digital vaccine passports on all of us? Is that even constitutional? What, what, what can you tell us about all of that? Of course, it's not constitutional. Uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals just struck down, at least temporarily, uh, Joe Biden's vaccine mandates. Yep. And his vaccine mandates are directly tied to the vaccine passports, the digital passports. That is the implementation tool for the coming mandates. Hmm. And we all know that, that the, 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 the first set of mandates for companies with 100 or more em, employees, that's just the beginning. Uh, his Surgeon General, Biden's Surgeon General, has already talked about their desire to apply this to small businesses. Uh, which means you will not uh, eventually be able to work anywhere uh, or enter any public place if these people get their way. You won't be able to go into restaurants, pubs, grocery stores, libraries, stadiums, you name it. You will be, uh, you will be barred at the door unless you can show the app on your phone, Janet, that shows you are up to date on your shots. And at the same time, We have the CDC director coming coming out and saying that they may soon have to, quote, redefine what it means to be fully vaccinated. So if you had one or two shots, uh, that's not going to do it. You now need a third shot. And if we look what's happening in these other countries, you need a fourth shot. This is going to continue on in perpetuity. And I predicted all of this when these vaccines started being Uh, released in December of last year. I said that they had plans not for one shot, not for two shots, but for continuous updates. They want to update your genetic code at least twice a year, the same way Bill Gates updates his Windows computer system. And I have all the facts on that. I have them quoted in their own words. The chief medical officer of Moderna called it his mRNA vaccine, quote, similar to and a computer operating system. You just, he said, your bo- the body is the hardware and his system is the software. And he said, we can quote, plug and play and update that uh, as needed. So this is the reality to which we are going into if we let them. And you asked how, how far along there are with this. They will take it as far as we let them. Yep. They yep. will take it as far as we let them. This is why I said last year, a year and a half ago, do not put on masks. The masks are training for the vaccine. And so the vaccine is then the setup for the vaccine passport. And the vaccine passport is the setup for the social credit scoring system that they have in China. This is the system that the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, and all of these elitist billionaires want to implement in the entire world. Book of Revelation looking pretty wise right about now. <laughs> Not that I ever doubted it, but yes. 
You know, yes, it is. Yeah, here we are. You know, here's the thing. When you talk about the World Economic Forum and its great reset and all of these chilling lines like you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. You know, it's it's straight out of Orwell. But when you're looking at the, the counter forces to these people and there's still millions of us in the United States who are counteracting what these totalitarians are trying to do to us. Is there any meaningful work being done by politicians who are on the side of the Constitution to mitigate against some of this stuff, to reveal some of this and to advertise and promote the information to the American people so that they will be able to stop this in its tracks? Obviously, private companies can do what they want. But on the other hand, when you have so many public and private companies working together on this vaccine initiative, this is insane. I mean, Leo, they, they've not done this with any other disease that's much more deadly than COVID-19. Obviously, this isn't about health. No. And, and you asked if there's any politicians. Great, great question, Janet. I would say no. Um, there are three that I can think of off the bat who've made somewhat of an effort. And that would be uh, Ted Cruz, Ron John- Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Ron Johnson, and Senator Rand Paul. Yeah. But even they are just sort of treating it as, you know, business as usual, um, you know, something that they are at least speaking out about. But I don't see their concerns being echoed by anyone else, or do I see them, you know, marshalling this in any successful way. Uh, what we're talking about here is, is the scandal of the century. We are talking about an unknown substance being approved by the government under an emergency use, okay? These shots have not been given full approval by the FDA. They'll tell you that one of the Pfizer shots has. Well, the problem with that is uh, you can't get that shot, (laughs) the comirnaty. Go go to your doctor or your uh, Walgreens and ask for the comirnaty shot that's been fully approved by the FDA, and they won't be able to, to, to provide it because it doesn't exist. And so they've used a so-called emergency to basically suspend all regulatory actions. They've used it to suspend the Constitution when it comes to vaccine passports. Uh, and we are living now in a state of so-called emergency in which apparently anything is allowed. It doesn't have to be uh, squared up with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And if our Congress doesn't wake up, those rights are going to be gone. You can go right down that Bill of Rights and read every one of them, and, and each one of them is under assault right now. Yeah. And, uh, and all I see among the Congress is business as usual. I don't see anyone really attacking this with a state of emergency, with a sense of urgency uh, that is needed, that, with the same urgency that the other side is, try, is trying to implement these, these radical reforms. Yeah, you're right about that. And, and you have a great piece. I want people to go to leohoman.com and also read about what you've written on Aaron Rodgers and the fact that you're seeing so many cases now, an increasing number of cases of young, very fit people struck down by cardiac arrest. And that raises a lot of questions about the, uh, the safety of some of these mRNA vaccines. What would you say, Leo, I know we've only got a minute left, with you, but what would you say people ought to be doing to protect themselves? Uh, obviously, it feels overwhelming, but what are some of the things you're doing or you would recommend we do in order to maintain our freedom and maintain our autonomy in the midst of all this totalitarianism? Yeah, great question. I would say let's start by taking back our biometric data and our personal 
data, our personally identifiable information. Stop putting this stuff on Facebook. Stop giving them your, your pictures of yourself and your children and, and all of this. You know, get off of these, these platforms if possible. There's yep. other conservative platforms that are out there as an alternative now. And yet you still see Christian people handing their data over to Facebook. And uh, there's also these, you know, same thing goes for 23andMe and, and these, you know, all of these, uh, you know, worldly systems that we engage with. I think it's time to pull back and start asking questions and looking for alternatives. I completely agree. It's why I've been off social media now for a while, and I'm loving it. It's so important to make sure that you are maintaining your autonomy. Leo, you write great stuff. I refer people over to your website, leohoman.com. Keep up the good work, and thank you so much for what you're doing and for being with us today. Thank you, Janet. All right. You take care, and God bless, and we'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Mefford Today. It is Thanksgiving week. The kids are out of school and we're all gearing up for turkey and trimmings and maybe some football. And for many of us, Thanksgiving Day is a day when we give thanks to God for His grace and for His blessings, even as the day has seen controversy and boycotts over the years. But my next guest notes that Thanksgiving has emerged as Americans' best-loved holiday. And so we're going to examine how Thanksgiving came about in the modern experience and why it is so beloved and celebrated on into today. It's so great to have with us Melanie Kirkpatrick. She is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a former deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Her book is called Thanksgiving, the Holiday at the Heart of the American Experience. And Melanie, it's so good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be with you and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. It is a wonderful holiday and it's really interesting in your book how you trace the changes that have happened since the 1600s. What do you make of the endurance of Thanksgiving? I think it is because everybody loves it. It's a time to uh, for family and friends to gather and give thanks, uh, which is a profound uh, and very basic human impulse to give thanks uh, to the Almighty for all of our blessings. Absolutely, and you know, it's and of course, the feasting part of it I shouldn't be left out either. Everybody <laughs> likes a good meal. Absolutely, and it's funny too because everybody, you know, I learned in school about the pilgrims and the pilgrims and the Indians. They called them Indians back then, but the pilgrims and the Indians sitting together and having a festive meal. And over the years, I've learned that maybe the first grade, second grade version that was always told to us wasn't completely accurate. What What is the truth about how the first Thanksgiving came together? Oh, the 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 stereotype of the first Thanksgiving of, of a happy time of um, the two peoples, the English and the Native Americans, enjoying themselves is basically true. Um, it was a uh, they, they they 
were at peace. It was a time of fellowship. And, uh, you know, all the, the tragic things that were to befall the Native Americans were a couple of decades away. Right. So this, the stereotype's essentially true. Right. Well, and here you have the whole history of the pilgrims, how they came over here for religious freedom. And yet when they came to the New World, they really, I don't think, knew how bad and tough it would be for them. So they were very dependent upon the Native Americans even to be able to eat, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The um, Wampanoag Indians are really the the heroes of the first Thanksgiving story. They're the ones who um, provided uh, the the knowledge, the know-how to the Indians to help them with that first harvest. They also showed them places to hunt and fish. Um, so they were, they were very welcoming. And um, uh, you think about that first Thanksgiving, which, by the way, the pilgrims would not have called a Thanksgiving. For the pilgrims, the Thanksgiving Day was entirely a, a day of worship, right. um, a day of giving thanks for a specific blessing. Right. And would have, you know, they would have been in attendance at, at worship for, most, for much of the day. Um, the the day that they spent the three days that they spent with uh, the Indians in 1621 um, has of course become known to as the first Thanksgiving. But um, if you could ask a pilgrim if that was a Thanksgiving, he he would have looked at you askance. <laughs> right, because they had different days of Thanksgiving, didn't they? That was part of their regular worship. They were many of them separatists who came over here and yep. and, and Calvinists. And that was what they believed, that, that there mm-hmm. were, was not one day of Thanksgiving, but many. That's right. And that usually a Thanksgiving was called for a very specific blessing. And what, for example, a rainfall or a military victory or a recovery from an illness or something like that. And there was a debate later in the 17th century um, when um, various places started naming days of general thanksgiving, that is, just thanks for um, continuing blessings, there was a debate over what theological, uh, whether that was a good thing theologically. Some people argued that um, it would encourage people to uh, take God's blessings for granted if you just had a general thanksgiving. It was better to hold a thanksgiving for you know, after a specific event. Wow. Yeah, well, it's funny. When you mentioned that it was three days of feasting it, back in 1621 with the Indians, we always thought about it as one meal, and it wasn't even necessarily in the fall. But what went on? What do we know specifically? Because I know, I think you said there were only really two people who had left accounts of the first Thanksgiving. That's right. Yeah, what There's, do we really know about what uh, they well, did? There are two eyewitness accounts, and we know that um, while the pilgrims were um, feasting, they probably ate outdoors because all they had was a little, um, uh, one little structure that they had uh, built. Um, uh, We know that there were about 53 pilgrims. That was half the number that had arrived on the Mayflower, and... um, as they were as they were there, ninety Indian warriors, hmm. men, you know, armed, arrived, and you can imagine what the pilgrims were thinking <laughs> right. as these guys approached. They would have thought, you know, is this friendly or not? They thought they had friendly relations with the Indians, but you never know. No. So the Indians brought um, five deer, which would have um, fed the entire group for quite a few meals. 
Um, again, that's another example of the generosity of the Wampanoan and also kind of a presages the um, the tradition of all of the people bringing things to a Thanksgiving meal. Okay. And uh, they had, um, at one point, they uh, did what uh, a, a pilgrim described as exercised their arms. That is, they had a dis- like a shooting display. And you have to think now, the, were the pilgrims just showing the Indians what they could do, or were they also giving them a subtle warning about <laughs> um, how, uh, you know, if things don't stay so happy, uh, you know, we can defend ourselves. Yeah. Um, so I think there must have been some mutual wariness, uh, even though it was a a time of fellowship, I think they were probably a little wary of, of one another. Wow. So th- so they had deer. What about turkey? Did they have any turkey at all? Probably. There is, um, in one of the accounts, there's a reference to wild turkey, but um, it certainly wasn't the, uh, the star of the meal the way it is today, but there could very well have been turkey. There, um, this is kind of fun to, to research, the culinary history, um, but they, they also had a lot of seafood, um, mussels, oysters, fish. Um, they probably had other fowl, such as duck and geese, and we know that the early English settlers also shot and, and ate such fowl as, um, as eagles and swans. Wow. So I know. Uh, um, they did not have cranberry sauce. Uh, they might have had cranberries, but you can't really, they're so sour, you can't really eat a cranberry without sugar, and the pilgrims uh, probably did not bring sugar with them because it was very expensive. True. Um, no potatoes, um, sweet potatoes or white potatoes, because they did not grow in um, that part of um, the North American continent at that time. Um, no apples. Uh, apples are not native to uh, North America, um, and it took a few decades before uh, the English could plant and grow apple trees uh, before they could have apple. Wow. And probably um, no pumpkin pie, I would imagine. No, they might have <laughs> had pumpkin because that was um, indigenous, but it would have been uh, roasted or cooked in a stew or something, it would not have uh, been in a pie because uh, although the pilgrims knew about pie, pie was popular in England, they didn't have any wheat flour. Ah, okay. That, well, that'd be hard, wouldn't it? If you didn't right, right, right. <laughs> that is so interesting. And you know, you're so right about that, Melanie, because the culinary history in and of itself is very interesting. I would imagine most grocery stores would have a difficult time saying, get your deer now. I don't think that <laughs> <laughs> probably right. would resonate the way turkey does today. But you know, there's so much more to the history of Thanksgiving since 1621 and some of the traditions we enjoy today. And I want to get into that when we come back from this break. We are talking about Thanksgiving, the holiday at the heart of the American experience. Melanie Kirkpatrick with us, and we'll return right after this.
For those of us who live in America, it may be hard to believe, but there are people in the country of Lebanon who have never heard about Jesus. That's exactly why Heart for Lebanon is there, working in the nation that's home to more than two million Syrian refugee families who have arrived there to escape civil war and terrorism. But every day, Heart for Lebanon is there, reaching out to these needy families in Jesus' name, telling them about him and providing food, Christian education, and survival essentials. And the Lord is changing their lives. Let me tell you about one of those refugees, Hanifa, who is 10 years old. She lost her mother when she was just a toddler, but Heart for Lebanon met her as they were delivering food portions to her family. With no opportunity for formal education, Hanifa wakes her father up early in the morning when Heart for Lebanon's educational fun truck is scheduled to arrive. Recently, during a skit about God's love, Hanifa placed her faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. And now, because her father is illiterate, she's reading the Bible to him each evening. This family, although currently living in very tough times, is slowly starting to realize the hope that only comes through Jesus Christ and the hope that only reaches them because people like you give to get the gospel to them. Your single investment of just $116 helps someone like Hanifa and her family with supplies needed to survive the next four months and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. Perhaps you could help a family like this for an entire year by joining our Hope Provider team at just $29 a month. Whatever you can do, please call now. 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner to click at JanetMefford.com. These families need immediate help. More than that, they need Jesus and they need you. Please call now. The number is 888-247-5499. That number again, 888-247-5499. Thank you and God bless you for your generosity. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. And if you're like me, you're probably in the midst of your shopping and gathering things together, decorations and food preparations for Thanksgiving. It's a wonderful time of year where we give thanks to God and have great meals and enjoy all sorts of other traditions like football and um, lots of fun things. It's been reduced to Turkey Day for some people, but it is a very enduring American tradition. We're talking with Melanie Kirkpatrick about it. And Thanksgiving is her book, The Holiday at the Heart of the American Experience. So you wander through and tell a lot about the kind of the political uh, implications and the political developments really regarding Thanksgiving, which I found really interesting, Melanie, because I hadn't known some of this stuff. When George Washington, for example, proclaimed our first Thanksgiving, I hadn't realized there, there was really a controversy involved there. What happened? That was a very surprising development, I thought. Um, it was the first Congress. Uh, it, it had been meeting in Manhattan, in downtown New York, in Federal Hall, since March 1789. And September comes along, and they're about to take a break. When a congressman rises to his feet and proposes a resolution to go to President Washington and ask him to declare a day of national thanksgiving. Well, I was here's the surprising part. Members of Congress objected to this. Hmm. Some said on two reasons, and these are reasons that you you can recognize today in our own political discussions. One had to do with executive power. 
the argument was that the Constitution did not give Washington, did not give a president the authority, a president the authority to call a national Thanksgiving, that that authority really belonged to the individual governors of the individual states. So that was one objection. The second objection had to do with religion. And because um, Thanksgiving is a religious holiday, the argument went, it was inappropriate for the government to get involved in any way, including naming a day of Thanksgiving. In the end, the objections were overcome. The vote was positive, and um, a delegation from the House and the Senate went to Washington, who then did a really smart thing. He was a he was a wise man in so many ways. He issued an, a, a proclamation for a day of national thanksgiving and he sent copies of it to the governors of the individual states but he didn't tell them to celebrate it. He requested them to do so. So I think that was a tip of the hat to the discussion that had gone, uh, taken place in Congress. And he also did something else, Janet, that was interesting. His Thanksgiving proclamation was religiously inclusive. And um, he could very easily have just made it Christian, because that, of course, was the predominant um, faith by far. But instead, he included uh, people of all faiths. Interesting. And so when you go down through the years, you mentioned like Lincoln called for all Americans to mark the same Thanksgiving Day at a very contentious time in history. That was another high point, really. Yes, yes. Um, After Washington... the Thanksgiving, the, the, the Thanksgiving habit for presidents kind of died out, and it was left to the individual governors to do it. And virtually every state did celebrate a Thanksgiving, but it would be on a, a different day. They didn't coordinate. But um, when Lincoln came along, he called a national Thanksgiving for 1863. It was, a, um, of course, a very bloody year in American history. It was in the middle of the Civil War. Americans were shooting each other, were killing each other. And yet Lincoln decided he was going to issue this proclamation calling for a thanksgiving for our general blessings. Can you imagine you know, everybody, you know, uh, just about everybody had lost a relative or a friend in this war, and yet here was Lincoln, Lincoln trying to point the way toward peace and um, calling on Americans to give thanks for um, the good things in their lives. Yeah, that's extraordinary when you consider the time. Oh, absolutely. So now when you bring it into the modern era, there have been a lot of things that have come up, as you talk about in the book, and and boycotts and day of mourning, you know, as mentioned about the uh, New England Indians uh, boycotting Thanksgiving. What about Thanksgiving in the modern context? How do you see... Thanksgiving regarded now? Is it fundamentally changed from, you know, not even 1621, but from previous centuries? I think the the basic elements of Thanksgiving are the same. It's a time for a family to get together. It's a time of good fellowships, certainly a time for feasting. Um, None of that has changed. And most of all, I think the the aspect of gratitude has also remained the same, however, in very different form. The original Thanksgivings were uh, 
heavily religious, almost exclusively religious, almost exclusively religious, and now the um, religious aspects as are are are. Um, are expressed in a different way. It used to be that everybody went to a house of worship on Thanksgiving Day. Today, you don't see that as much. Um, But I think people, there's one day a year that they say grace around their dinner table. It's Thanksgiving Day. Yeah, I think you're right about that. What about football? How did this become such a big tradition? Obviously, you know, it's been a big tradition for as long as I can remember. But how did football, just because people were home eating, they knew it was a good time to put games on the TV? (laughs) No, it actually goes back even farther than that. The first American football game took place in 1869 between Rutgers and and Princeton. Rutgers won. And uh, not long after that, um, Princeton and Yale played a game on Thanksgiving Day in the 1870s. And then in the 80s, that game moved to New York City, where it became uh, just such a popular event. And you know how New York uh, trends kind of take over the whole country. (laughs) And this football mania began in New York. And by 1890 or the early 1890s, there were 5,000 football games being played on Thanksgiving Day around the country. Oh, wow. So that was really the groundswell of of the beginning of the groundswell of of enthusiasm for the sport. um, and it was it, it too was controversial. It's kind of like the um, controversy over Black Friday today. Mm-hmm. People argued that football detracted Americans from the true meaning of Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, wow. And uh, this was debated. And of course, uh, we know that uh, football um, is still with us. Yes. And I, I think people have come to uh, find their own balance among the competing factors of the day. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. You know, one of the things that you talk about as well is the link between the first Thanksgiving and young immigrants who can relate to this idea of people Mm -hmm. settling in a new land. I thought that was very interesting. How have you seen recent immigrants react, for example, to the Thanksgiving story? What have you heard about the connection they feel? I went to a high school, a public high school in New York, in Queens, New York, called uh, the Newcomers high school. And it's a school for uh, immigrants who have just come to this country and the kids learn English. And once their English is good enough, they can move on to a different high school. Um, And I interviewed them about Thanksgiving. And I was not prepared for the responses I got. But these kids had a profoundly personal understanding of what it meant to um, give thanks Mm -hmm. on Thanksgiving Day. They um, Thanksgiving has for many years been a kind of quasi-patriotic holiday, and for these kids, um, that was certainly the case. It demonstrated their um, it kind of it was a, it was their entry into uh, America in a, in a kind of formal way because they were adopting this tradition. I remember one boy telling me that he was like the pilgrims. He came here for religious freedom. He was he said he was from Tibet, a country that hasn't formally existed since 1950 when China invaded it. And he said he was like the pilgrims 
because they too were seeking religious freedom. He came here so that he could uh, practice Tibetan Buddhism freely. And then a girl spoke up and said, oh, I'm from Egypt and I'm a Copt, that is a Christian from Egypt. And that was the reason her family came to this country as well. Hmm. Then other kids spoke about um, coming to this country to seek better lives for themselves and their families. And that, of course, was like the the um, non-Puritans who were part of the original pilgrims. Yeah. And uh, so it was uh, it was really interesting to me that on Thanksgiving Day, uh, all these kids born in the four corners of the world felt profoundly American. Yeah, yeah, that is fascinating. And 400 years after the fact, we still have that same sentiment at the most beloved holiday in America. I think that's fantastic. The name of the book is Thanksgiving, the holiday at the heart of the American experience. And happy Thanksgiving, Melanie Kirkpatrick. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. All right. You take care. And thank you for listening. JanetMefford.com, our website. God bless you. We'll see you there. This hour of Janet Meffer today is brought to you in part by Heart for Lebanon. Call 888-247-5499 to give desperate people help and the hope of the gospel. 888-247-5499.